Hello, my name is Josh, and welcome to our Conversation with Two Geeks, a podcast where we talk about movies, comics, and everything in between. Today, we have a special guest. They run the channel Cancel Geeks. Say hello to Vera. Say hi, Vera. Hey, everybody. Uh, today, the total of us will be talking about everything from the Ghostbusters Afterlife trailer to Scarlett Johansson suing Disney and much more. You can find our back catalog on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are listened to. Also, leaving our own social media as well as the link to Vera's book, um, Dreams of Fire, correct? Yes, that's the one. Dreams of Fire on uh, down in the description so that way you can go check that out. And yeah, let's jump into it. First off, I just want to say thank you for coming on to the channel. I'm a really big fan of your work on YouTube and just I I just think you're awesome. Thank you so much. I was I was delighted to be asked. I'm more than happy to do it. Yeah. And just yeah, and I just I just appreciate all your content and stuff. Like for example, we were talking about this off 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 air. Sorry, this is off air. <laughs> But uh, we were talking about how much I really enjoy your Loki stuff, and I I really do enjoy I I really do enjoy your con- content stuff, and just like the various reactions and stuff, especially to something like this that we're now about to cover. So this actually segues into we got an second official trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife. The synopsis reads: From director Jason Reitman and producer Ivan Reitman comes the next chapter in the Ghostbusters universe. In Ghostbusters Afterlife, when a single mom, played by Karen Coon, and her two kids, played by Ken and Grace and Finn Wolfhart, arrive in a small town, they begin to discover their connection to the original Ghostbusters and the secret legacy their grandfather left behind. The film is directed by Jason Reitman, with him and Monster House director Gail Kanan writing the script. Ghostbusters Afterlife is slated for a release date of November 11, 2021. Vera, um... I know you already did like trailer reaction to this, which again, I'll leave behind. What are your thoughts on this trailer? All right, I'll give them real quick. Before we do, can I just say, I, I'm taking great amusement for the fact that there's zero acknowledgement that Jamie isn't here. So just for any for oh. anyone listening, one co-host is mysteriously gone and suddenly it's me. What, what happened? Did, did she murder the co-host and take their place? Have you slipped into an alternate universe? Is this the Mandela effect? What has happened? Oh, oh Lord, I am so sorry. Okay, so context here, viewers. <laughs> Jamie is out at work today. So um sadly she shouldn't she wasn't able to come on. Um, yeah, she she's at work today, so sadly she wasn't able to come on, but she did say that she was really excited to come on today. So um addressing that out of the way, oh my god. I- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so as far as the trailer goes, I mean, a little bit of background. The original Ghostbusters from 1984 is my favorite film of all time. I really do not like Ghostbusters 2 at all. Um, I've the seen 20- the rewrite. Yeah, the 2016 one, I think it's fine. Honestly, my main issue with that is the fact that it's a reboot more than anything else. But even as a film unto itself, I'm like, it's fine. Like, I don't have particularly strong feelings one way or the other. So, like, the idea of revisiting Ghostbusters, especially in film, since I'm of the opinion the only decent continuation, at least that I've seen, was certain episodes of the real Ghostbusters cartoon. Um, I've heard there's some good comic book stuff. I haven't read it. But so the the idea of revisiting this at all, especially on the big screen, makes me nervous because the track record is not great right now. After the first movie. That said... I like the vibe I'm getting off this in general. Mm-hmm. I'm liking the look of it. I like that it is not set in New York because there's no reason that you can't move it to a smaller town and get a different feel while still introducing a lot of the same elements. Mm-hmm. If there's one major thing that 
I do not like is that we have multiple indicators in this trailer that Gozer is returning, and I don't like mm-hmm. that. I don't. I, I don't like it for multiple reasons. The short version is I. It feels partially overly. I don't know what your language restrictions are here but oh no no you can curse you can curse it feels partly just fan wanky masturbatory if i'm going to be completely honest to to bring back gozer that's part of it and then beyond that depending on how it's done it runs the risks of undercutting the victory from the original movie because like well it just came back later so you know it it takes the wind out of the victory potentially depending on how it goes down but that's the main thing that has me nervous about it the most of the rest of what i see has me uh cautiously optimistic which is usually about the the most excited i get uh for things before they come out because i can't stop my brain from thinking of all mm-hmm. the ways it might go wrong yeah. yeah no i i get you with that for me um i i love the original so i love the original as well i'm more of just like more of a casual fan when it comes to the Ghostbusters universe. Like I haven't fully have gone into like the comics and the animated series. I just enjoyed the 1984 movie because it's you know it's a great it's a funny movie, funny movie and stuff. That having been said, the main thing I'm really interested in with this is that you have a director like Jason Reitman who I don't, have you seen any of his previous works like Juno or Up in the I've Air? I've seen Juno. I've seen Thank You for Smoking. He did Up in the Air, which I mm-hmm. saw. I haven't seen that. I don't think I've seen any of his more recent stuff. Okay. Um. I. I'll be honest, I, I haven't either. I've read the script for Tully, but that was years ago. But here you have like a director, especially much who's much more, especially when you compare it to his father, it's much more of a dramedy director, to be honest. Like there's to me a gundertuck, but most of the time it is taken seriously. And I just find that very interesting, especially with the whole single mom and the, that storyline. And so- well- this is part of where I diverge from a lot of people who really like Ghostbusters because, and you even did it now, a mm. lot of people like describe it as a comedy first. Mm. I don't, I'm not saying it's not funny. It's very funny, but, mm. and I think part of this is a side effect of the fact that I started watching it at such a young age, an age at which most of the jokes flew over my head. Mm. I did not appreciate how funny it actually was at the time I first fell in love with it. So to me, Mm. Ghostbusters is a supernatural action first and a comedy second. Mm. So, and I honestly think that's the better way to approach it because I look at something like Ghostbusters 2 and they really amped up the comedy angle of that. And to its detriment, very strongly, I feel. I think what I love about the first one is you could strip every single joke out of that original and it's still an interesting movie and it would still be worth watching. Mm-hmm. I think approaching it, approaching a sequel like it's a comedy is how we got some of the bigger issues with Ghostbusters 2 and with Ghostbusters 2016, if I'm yeah. honest. Yeah. They, appro- they approached it like we're making a comedy, whereas at least how the end result feels with the original Ghostbusters is we're making this supernatural buddy action movie that is also very funny. And you're kind and I'm just thinking, and you're completely right about that. Cause I'm just thinking about like the development process. Cause you know, originally it was supposed to be like a big, huge, like mega blockbuster where like the Ghostbusters would be going like alternate realities and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about the original ideas before they you know obviously had to pare it down because you know they couldn't do that back in 1984. But, uh, but it's just, I just I never really thought about that, but then you, yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. I never really thought about it like as a supernatural action, action comedy as opposed to just a com as opposed to just a comedy. And so yeah, that's you're one hundred percent right about that. 
I didn't realize that about that, but I, I, I get things right sometimes every now and then. <laughs> uh, anyway, moving on to our next topic, according to Variety, the upcoming Hawkeye show, which stars Jeremy Renner reprising his role as a titular character and Haley Seinfeld as his protege, Kate Bishop, is slated for a November 24th release date. Along with Renner and Steinfeld, the series will also star Vera Farmiga, Florence Pugh, Fratty, Tony Dalton, Alec Kia, Kia Cox, and Zal McClernan. I'm sorry if I pronounced any of those names wrong. Um, with Mad Men writer uh, Jonathan Ingla attached to write and executive produce the series. Mira, what are your thoughts on this? And also, are you excited for the Hawkeye show at all? I don't have any real strong feelings on it at this point. I probably won't develop any until I see a trailer and get a stronger sense of what the tone of the thing actually is. Um, I like Hawkeye as a character. I like Haley Steinfeld as an actress. So that's a solid enough foundation. But if they're bringing in the right, one of the head writers from Mad Men, I never watched Mad Men. So that me tells either. me nothing one way or the other. And as far as the other actors go, like they, it's, and some of them are very good, but it's like, it, it is all going to depend on what is this thing even aiming to be. And mm-hmm. sort of, I, I'm not even really going to start to form expectations until at the very least, I know the tone of the thing. Because with a character like Hawkeye, you could go very espionage, very serious, very ground level, gritty even Mm -hmm. if you wanted to. But the fact that they're bringing in Kate Bishop at least opens the window of having a slightly lighter tone for her, for that character's involvement. So Mm -hmm. until I get at least a teaser to give me a better sense of what the show will actually be, I'm just kind of like, I'll be curious. And that's kind of all I've got. Yeah, no, I'm I'm more with you in there. I I know for me, like from what I've at least been able to capture, um, I know they're using Matt Fraction as my life as a I think it's my life as a weapon, uh, as a weapon story uh, comic storyline as an inspiration. But we'll we'll see about that. Also, I'm excited to Kate, that Haley Steinfeld's playing Kate Bishop because I really am a big fan of her as an actress. And yeah, no, that's that's all I really have. I'm just happy that we finally got a release date for this thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's. I mean, Disney, they've been actually very smart at the pace at which they mm-hmm. announce these things because um, if you announce too much too far in advance, then by the time the thing actually happens, people have have already started getting bored of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually one of the things that I've started that like a side effect, I think, in a lot of ways of COVID when everything had to be pushed back forever. I yeah. think in a lot of ways they saw in real time the far-reaching effects of people waiting so long for something mm-hmm. almost always results in disappointment. And and I, for one, have said for a while, I would really appreciate the a shortening of the marketing window mm-hmm. to more in the six-month range instead of stretching out to about a year, which is what yeah. has been for a lot of the tentpole stuff lately. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're 100% right and I do I think I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing that more and more even not with just Disney but with other studios and companies. I mean, there's even a certain franchise movie Matrix 4 that I'm still waiting for a trailer for and uh, okay, I'll talk to you more about this if I get the chance off off air because I I have something that I did recently while I was in LA and I was going to do but they canceled it and I'll, I'll talk to you a bit more about it later, but yeah, I was a bit kind of furious about that, but, um, it, but I understand why, but either way, like I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of studios, especially because of young know, COVID and stuff, they will start shortening their marketing windows 
to let's so not even six months, but let's just say three months in advance. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think at least for the remainder of this year, three months is probably about all we're going to get just because these studios are trying to unload like a year and a half, two years worth of movies mm-hmm. in eight months. So mm-hmm. like stuff is piling up one after the other a lot more than they would like, like from even the same studio. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not even talking like competition from other studios, mm-hmm. but like Disney, it was not Disney's plan to have four Marvel movies and this many series out in the same calendar year. Mm-hmm. That was not the original plan, but that's what oh, we yeah. are. Yeah. And the best way to juggle that is to not have is to have them stepping on top of each other as little as possible. Yeah, I, I see that as well. And you're right. They are. Because I keep forgetting, especially with how much stuff we're getting, all this was supposed to come out last year. A lot of it. Yeah. And like Black Widow was supposed to be last year. Um, uh, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier was supposed to be last year. Mm hmm. Um, Eternals was supposed to be last year. I think think Eternals was supposed to be last year. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff that has now been moved forward a year and is sharing space with stuff that was always supposed to come out this year and is still coming out this year. Yeah. Yeah, No, I, it's it's become a thing. It's become a thing, but yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Moving on to our next topic. An exclusive from the Hollywood Reporter reveals that Oscar winning actor J.K. Simmons is in negotiations for Prize's role of the classic Batman character commissioner James Gordon in Batgirl, Warner Brothers feature for HBO Max that's casting swiftly within Heights actress Leslie Grace set to star as a titular character. The film is being is set to be directed by Bad Boys for Life, Helmers, Adriel Abi Abi, and Bella Fial, and written by Birds of Prey screenwriter Christina Hodson. So what are your thoughts on J.K. Simmons reprising his role? And would you like to see him reprise his role in this? I mean, the thing is, he got so little screen time in either cut of Justice League that like, okay. For me, what's more interesting about the fact that they're bringing him back is DC has really just thrown their hands up and gone, fuck it, with any sense of maintaining continuity at this point. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what happens when you have to cut the same movie. Well, they'd given up even before. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, I know. I, that, that, was more, that was more of a joke. But that- yeah, no. That said, since the Flash movie actually looked like I've been saying for years, I'll believe that a Flash movie is happening when it actually starts filming. It's actually filming. <laughs> we have pictures from production. So now I have to admit, OK, it actually is a movie that's going to exist now. I'll be curious how much they actually try to use that thing to tie up the continuity. I hope they don't. That would be a don't as well. That would be a stupid use of two hours. But given a lot of the decisions that have been made with the DC movies, it's also one that I'm half expecting they're going to make. Probably. <laughs> Pro- probably. I'm just imagining some studio executive being like, all right, this is how we're going to, this is how we're, this is how we're going to do the Flash movie. We're going to tie up everything here. And while yeah. we're on um, Mass Amounts of Coke. But then yeah, again, and, I, there are some folks who think I hate DC. I don't hate DC. I like DC, but they just manage their properties really badly for about the last 20 years. So I have a lot more to complain about with DC. Oh, oh yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. And this is coming from, and this is coming from both Jamie and I. We like the CW Arrowverse. And when, you, when your television division has a better sense of continuity than your film division, something is very, very wrong. Yeah. I wish I liked more of the Arrowverse. I basically uh, phased out of everything except for Legends of Tomorrow, which I love to death because it's stupid oh, and it I knows sh- it. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, 
Um, moving on to our next topic, um, and actually something that's actually somewhat connected to Warners because they kind of distributed the first movie of this. Uh, exclusive from Variety reports that a new live-action Pokemon series is in the works at Netflix, of all places. Wow, that's interesting. Uh, no plot details are available as at the time as things are in the early stages. However, sources say that Joe Henderson, best known as the co-showrunner, second producer of the show Lucifer, is attached to write and executive produce a series. Okay, Vera, what are your thoughts on this? And also, have you seen Lucifer? I got bored of Lucifer after three episodes. I know other people love it, and that's great, and I'm glad you love it. I did not find the character or the setup engaging enough. Mm. I, I found it. I found it fairly one note. Now, if you happen to love that note, more power to you. Mm-hmm. I got tired of that note. Um, and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to find something else to do. Mm. Yeah, that's understandable. I've I, I mainly been put off there because I have a whole thing with procedurals. I just don't like them. There's only a few shows. I mean, that that's admittedly part of it. The procedural formula has been run into the goddamn ground. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I do actually like that as mm-hmm. a format, but boy, did I burn out on it after a while. That was actually part of why I didn't really like the um, the Constantine TV show. Mm. That was a that was effectively a procedural, mm-hmm. and I got very bored with the format. And I wasn't shocked when it got canceled after a season. Yeah, I'm, I'm more of a serialized format person. The only time I could accept a procedural if it's with like something like Brooklyn Nine Nine or. I don't know. Or the only other show I could probably accept that's not a comedy is Fringe. Do you remember Fringe? I remember Fringe. I I did about the half of the first season. It was fine. But again, that this was before I even had DVR because this was a while back. So like it got to the point where I'm like, I don't have I don't like this enough to go out of my way to be home when it's airing. Okay. Um, I was sort of where I landed with that. I mean, the thing is like, I do actually enjoy episodic storytelling, Mm -hmm. but there, I do make a distinction between episodic and procedural procedural Mm -hmm. as a format is episodic, but there are plenty of Mm -hmm. things that you can do that are episodic without having it be procedural. Mm -hmm. And it is procedural feels like such a locked in format for this is the, this is how every single episode goes. Here's Mm -hmm. the structure of every single episode. Introduce the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and here's here's what they think the solution is. It doesn't work. They think of something else. It doesn't work. Here's the twist. It like I bounced off um, elementary for the same reason. And mm. I really liked Johnny Lee Miller as Sherlock Holmes, mm-hmm. but it was so locked into the procedural format. I'm like, I'm figuring these solutions out, not because I'm a genius, but because I know the structure of these damn stories too well. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, no, I I want to hundred percent get you, and I have the I have that same problem as well, and it's why I can't do stuff like I can't do Law and Order, I can't do Law and Order, and I can't do other shows like that. But anyways, I digress. Um, <laughs> but as for this Pokemon series, um, this is interesting because you know we had the we had the movie what like twenty nineteen. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. See, what's curious to me is I am going to be really curious how much money Netflix throws at this thing because they have to be aware that. Detective Pikachu is going to be the visual benchmark mm-hmm. of what people expect mm-hmm. from a live action Pokemon. And that's not cheap. And Netflix can be really weird to try and wrap your head around because mm-hmm. they really do spend money all over the map. They produce yeah. a ton of cheap Jack stuff that they barely pay anything to make. 
but then they've got their handful of stuff that they shell out ridiculous amounts of money for. Mm -hmm. And I'll be curious just to see where this falls. And I think that is probably going to have the biggest influence as to whether I'm even morbidly curious because I don't have a lot of connection to Pokemon. My kid will probably want to watch it. But Mm -hmm. me personally, I don't have strong nostalgia. I played Pokemon Yellow Mm. a little when it first came out and that was it. Mm. So this was late 90s. Cause mm. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I, for me, I'm on the younger side. Well, I'm on the younger side of things, but for me, I'm, I'm just curious. Cause again, po- the heck Pikachu was like the first official thing that I think the Pokemon company allowed me like, okay, we'll let this, we'll let this, you're, you're going to be able to do this, this detective Pokemon thing to see if Pokemon will even work. And I don't know what the box office numbers, but I remember it being somewhat underperforming, but and I, think ha- it did, I think it did solidly. It was also, if I remember correctly, it was a fall release, not a summer. Well, I, I want to sum- check that before I get too far into this, though. Um, so that came out. Oh, no, it was May. So it was start of summer. Mm-hmm. It did decently. So it had a $150 million budget. It made $433 um, total box office worldwide which is good, but is it's one of those things where like uh, how bloated movies have become. It's an underperformance by today's standards because mm-hmm. these days, if you spend 150 million, you expect a box office of 600. Mm-hmm. So 600. It, it could be considered a bit of an underperformer, but it was definitely still profitable. Yeah, yeah, no, I... Yeah, no, I remember it being somewhat among that line. And yeah, I know you're 100% right. I remember... Yeah, I remember it being somewhere around that line and just, and yeah, no, I'm just curious because again, you're completely 100% right. It depends on how much Netflix and Netflix, and again, you're right. Netflix is willing to shell out money for this, but also, well, not just for this, but for stuff like this, like I'm just thinking Stranger Things and The Witcher, but then you're also right that they produce a lot of low budget stuff and it's kind of all over the place. So I digress um it is i mean but uh, honestly it's not that weird when you think about it especially when you realize how much um many of the major studios abandoned mid-budget movies mm. i mean at this point major studios they all they everyone wants massive temple franchises mm-hmm. they don't put a lot of money into movies that don't have franchise potential anymore mm. um like i remember i think it was five years ago or so Warner brothers just flat out announced we will not make anything with a budget under a hundred million dollars anymore. So like Netflix is very smartly filled a hole that mm-hmm. is there in terms of like, look, this is well-made, but it's not $150 million worth of well-made. It's just really good, solid stuff mm-hmm. yeah. while also occupying the, <laughs> the bottom of the barrel with their freaking stuff like the Christmas prints when they feel like that. I'm like, they seem to have a very good sense of what's worth spending money on and understanding that just because we didn't spend much on this doesn't mean we can't turn a profit on it. I, I know. I'm also just, oh God, there were three of those. How many? There were about yeah. three of those. Oh my God, there were three of those. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I saw parts of two of them. I think my my partner put on the first one I think just to torture me. Um, And then she put on the second one and let me do other stuff. So that was a background thing, but she's like, 
I'm not sure she actually likes them, but like it, it is kind of a, a bizarre fascination. I, I. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just imagining that right now, and I just, it's just, I don't know, it's funny. It's just, it, especially like just like having, uh, especially with her, um, her. Correct. I just want to make sure. Yes. Okay. Her, her, um, just like just putting it on just to torture you, and then like putting it on the background. And it's just like, you're not causing any joy. If I'm not getting any joy about this, you're definitely not. And I'm just. (laughs) Uh, Oh, I digress. Anyways, um, moving on to something that was, that did have a very large budget. And I'm kind of surprised it's being brought back. Uh, While speaking with Collider, producer John Davis announced a series based off the 1990 film Waterworld. It is in the works with 10 Cloverfield Lane director Dan Trackberry attached to direct. For those that, for those unfamiliar or whom don't remember, released in 1995 and a major box office bomb at the time, Waterworld followed the mar- uh, follows the Mariner played by Kevin Costner, a half human, half sea creature who helps out a woman and a young girl in a post-apocalyptic future where the polar ice caps have completely melted. The three set out to find dry land before the late great Dennis Hopper and his group of outlaws called Smokers find it first. The series is set to take place 20 years following the original film with the same characters from it however there is no showrunner yet with john fox uh, david's producing partner saying we're talking to folks but nobody's locked in yet said fox dan's attached we're breaking the story now and we're talking to a few different writers and we should have a writer locked in i would say i would think over the next couple weeks as for where the series will air fox said for now it's a universal television and we're putting it together but yes we think it already has a home signaling a peacock deal given universal television involvement so <laughs> um vera what are your thoughts on this so okay between this and the next one we're gonna talk about can i just ask this question uh universal are you okay (laughs) did 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 you did you get in over your head is there a loan shark on your back is is that why you're doing like i know that you're short you know some major franchises i know the dark universe thing really didn't work out for you but yeah like, come on. Um, blink, blink if blink if you're blink if you're hostage. Yeah. Blink twice if they're making you green light this. Um, so all right, here's the thing. I think the first thing to probably address is that Waterworld, the reason it was unsuccessful had a lot more to do with its cost than its box office because it it went massively over budget. Mm-hmm. because they were stupid and actually shot the thing out in the ocean. And you know what the ocean doesn't do? It does not conform well to shooting schedules and it's going to do its own damn thing. I mean, when Spielberg, oh, sorry, sorry to review, but when Spielberg kind of tells you like, hey, I wouldn't recommend shooting in the water, you listen to Spielberg. Yeah, yeah, you should have learned. The, but I, so if, if Waterworld had not had been on budget, what it made at box office would have been fine and it's worth mentioning the thing did eventually turn a profit you know years later with home video and and, TV and licensing and i should also mention the theme park right of the um the little stage show which side note i had while i was in la and this is another la thing i saw the stage show for the first time that's what, because they have that at the uh, the universal studios yep parks yeah that was the first time i ever saw it and it was actually really good but i've I heard digress. that I've heard that about it, but like, so mm-hmm. here's what's weird to me. Mm. Part of me honestly wonders 
because the the core idea of basically Mad Max on the water mm-hmm. is a solid enough idea, and it's a solid mm-hmm. enough pitch. And part of me can't help but wonder if they just wanted to do that, and then someone pointed out, "Hey, that's a little bit similar to this thing that's an established property." Mm-hmm. And I I have said this more than a more than a few times, uh, like on my channel. A recognizable name is considered a form of um, risk avoidance. Mm. So if you can tie something to an existing property, even not a especially successful one, you hope that people go, oh, I've heard of that. So I wouldn't be shocked if, if there were ideas percolating and then suddenly somebody remembered, hey, there's that thing we did. Um, because I, I can't imagine that Dan Trachtenberg came in going, guys, I want to work in, in the water world universe so bad. I have a hard time imagining that was what happened. Yeah. I, from what I've been able to gather, at least from this report, it seems like Davis, cause he's working on another thing with him. I think he's working on the predator on the new predator, upcoming predator movie with him. Oh God. I forgot. They're still trying to do more than stop. Like just, just stop. I, the, the, Two movies ago, it was fine, but you weren't happy with the box office and you gave up on that. The last one was terrible. Just stop. Yeah, no. The only reason why I'm even giving that credit is because they said it might be more like the reference, but that's a whole other conversation. That's a whole other conversation. And I wouldn't say, anyway, so I have a feeling that Davis is like, hey, you know, we might be doing this Waterworld thing. Uh, you want in on this? And like, yeah, sure. I just, yeah, no. I mean, you're, you, you probably, I, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I wouldn't be surprised if Davis had at least a similar idea, but then realized, oh, wait, didn't we do that? We did that movie already. Yeah. Because, I mean, if, if you're looking at the world around you and going and just wanting to do a future set thing, it's like, okay, well, if the ocean levels are rising and the polar ice caps are mel- melting, what if I did a story in a world almost entirely covered by water? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we did that we did that already but yeah no i uh, yeah no i okay as someone that's on again younger side of things Waterworld, at least from what i've been able to gather because i've seen the movie I've, I've seen the movie at least once all the way through and then the bits and pieces and then also the theme park stuff is has always just been a very interesting like why they should I, I i will never understand why they never just use the soundstage for that entire set like yeah why that there, there are like four or five scenes that would have actually needed to be shot on the ocean, and only to the extent of you just needed to point the camera. You could have actually done it close to the shore, but just point the camera towards the horizon so mm-hmm. it looks like you're farther out on the ocean. There mm-hmm. are a couple of scenes that would have needed that, but yeah, a lot of it could have been a soundstage, and it you wouldn't have known the difference. Also, so at the very least, I have a strong feeling they are going to have tight budget control over this thing. Oh, after yeah, yeah. What happened last time. Yeah, I'd be like, we are not shooting on the water. We are using sound stages. Soundstage and green screen and anything but the actual ocean. Yes. Also, another thing I want to mention, I imagine, I also, this is also like the beginning of the end of the Kevin Costner directing period. Because I have a feeling that started with Dances with Wolves. And ended Waterman with Waterworld and the Postman. Well, it's worth knowing noting he did not direct Waterworld. Hmm. 
he um he was a producer on it um uh, but he did not direct it. it that was directed by kevin reynolds by the name of kevin reynolds kevin reynolds if i'm not mistaken he did robin hood yeah. if i'm not mistaken he did robin hood prince of thieves uh, so you know they'd worked together before um but yeah this this was kind of the this and then I think the postman was what broke it. This was starting to be the cracks in Costner's career surge because I think that that basic I forget which one was first, but not that far apart were Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Dances with Wolves, and he was considered you know a major talent at that point. And then this happened. Then the postman happened. And it was like. And then actually, I think people started to go back and look at his performances and go, he's actually not that good an actor. Like he's be- he's kind of better now because mm-hmm. he's he's got this aged gruffness that he that kind of works. Whereas when he was younger, it just read flat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like no. very flat. Whereas now it, it just feels more world weary, which mm-hmm. works better. Yeah. And I, I have to agree with you on there because I remember just and I don't know how you feel about this movie. I'm. I'm mixed on it, but I'm just thinking about his performance as Jonathan Kent and Man of Steel and in this um, neo-Western that just came out. I think it's Let Him Go, I believe is what it's called. Oh, he's had he's had a number of Westerns that he's done in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that one, though. But with going with Jonathan Kent, so like, I hate Jonathan Kent in Man of Steel, but that, that's a writing issue. He mm-hmm. plays the part as written very well. Mm-hmm. So not his fault. I do hate that portrayal of the character though yeah yeah no i i, I get you when it comes to there but yeah no i they're not they're not bringing costner into this i i'm, I'm just oh no no, no yeah no. yeah no. I, I would imagine because here's the thing he's he's still enough of a just by virtue of being a recognized name he'd be too expensive to be worth bringing into this mm-hmm. and be like okay look we're gonna shell out money but we can't shell all the money yeah like just yeah not to mention if they want to make it the action thing that the original tried to be and from what i hear the live show is they're Mm -hmm. also going to want someone younger who can you know do the stunts and stuff yeah 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 Yeah. i'm I'm definitely with you in there yeah anyways moving on moving on to something that also weren't uh, not warners but anyway moving on to something to another thing that universal is also shelling out money for again universal if you're being taken hostage <laughs> by a loan shark just blink twice <laughs> uh according to variety universal is shelling out an eye-popping 400 million to buy a new exorcist trilogy with plans to screen some of the films on peacock a streaming service the new trilogy is set to be directed by david gordon green who just did another horror trilogy, the 2018's Halloween, and it sequels 2021's uh, Halloween Kills and 2022 Halloween Ends. In addition to that, the trilogy will also have Ellen Bernstein return to the role of Chris McNeil, uh, Bernstein's character from the original 1973 film, Who Was Possessed. She'll be joined by Leslie Ohm Jr. of Hamilton Knives Out 2 fame, with the plot center around Ohm's character as he tracks down Bernstein's character after his own child becomes possessed. There's no better time to be joining forces with the team at Peacock, reuniting with the great team at Universal, and finally getting to work with my friends at Blumhouse on this classic franchise, said David Robinson, the CEO of Morgan Creek Entertainment, who along with Blumhouse will be producing the movie in a statement. Uh, David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, Scott Teams, and Peter Sadler have put together a compelling continuation of this iconic tale, and I cannot wait to bring this to fans around the world. So this is, this is interesting. 
So here's the thing. Almost all of this makes a lot of sense except mm-hmm. for the price tag. Yes. Because like uh, revivals of older properties, especially horror properties, mm-hmm. have been doing quite well of late. You know, as mm-hmm. you mentioned with the with the Halloween revival being a really good example recently. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, other franchises, not even necessarily horror, have done you know long delayed sequels. You know, going back to Mad Max Fury Road and things like that. So, mm-hmm. it bringing back The Exorcist, especially if you can get Ellen Bernstein uh, mm-hmm. in. Um, Because this was originally misreported as being a reboot, and it's not. It's a continuation. Mm -hmm. So, like, if you can, if you can get her in, if you can get people who are passionate about it, all of, and like, Blumhouse has a really strong track record, Mm -hmm. especially with this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. All of this makes sense. But I'm looking at that four hundred million dollars. The only thing that I can even begin to think of that might account for why it's that high is if the rights were really expensive because universal has never held the rights to Mm -hmm. the exorcist. It was all of the exorcist films, except the third one were distributed by Warner brothers. Third Mm -hmm. one was done by Fox. Um, Okay. I didn't know the third one was done by Fox. I thought it was all Warners. No third one was Fox. I I don't know exactly why, Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't. And, so it's my assumption. I had hoped to find this in the uh, in the article because Variety is usually pretty good about listing this kind of stuff, but they didn't in this case, and I couldn't find. I couldn't confirm who it was. Mm. But I'm going to assume that Warner's was holding the rights um, mm-hmm. to it, and that Universal had to wh- whoever had the rights, whoever had the mm-hmm. um, the distribution rights or the rights of refusal or whatever. Mm-hmm. prior the only thing that makes that price tag make sense is if universal had to shell out to acquire the distribution rights from somebody else be it warners or anybody else yeah if they didn't have to do that what the fuck yeah like i and it's it's even weirder especially with blumhouse involved because blumhouse is a very tightly run shift that yeah. works on 10 million dollar budget movies most of the time mm-hmm like even their higher end tops out at like 30, 40. Mm-hmm. And that's when they've got a, a larger studio backing them. So yeah, that, I I really want to know why. <laughs> what the hell drove the price up to that? Because I can't imagine it's going to be the production or the shooting of the thing. Yeah, and I imagine like if even like combining all the budget there, it would at least like topple to like 100 million, maybe 200 million. I'm I just... would think, yeah. I mean, for hor- horror movies, there's a reason horror movies don't go big budget one Mm -hmm. they don't have that high a return Mm -hmm. as a rule of thumb Mm -hmm. um you know straight up horror movies anyways Mm -hmm. and um number two they don't need big budgets because most of the things that people like horror movies for aren't expensive Mm -hmm. like they're difficult to do well but gore effects aren't expensive Shooting yeah. in really moody lighting and getting creepy music is not expensive. Yeah, and horror fans don't care about big. They'll care. They'll care about Ellen Bernstein for the legacy part, but I can't imagine her price tag is that high right now either. Yeah. So unless they gave her a very substantial sum of money, which they might have, but even that, I it wouldn't have driven it up to this level. So yeah, even <laughs> combining all three movies, I would think two hundred million tops 
on that. And that's, and that's being really generous. Yeah. I, you know, cause this is interesting because we reported on this, on the whole idea of having another exorcist movie from David Gordon Green months ago. I can't remember when, but it was months ago. And just the idea of it sounds cool and stuff. It's just, again, universal. If you're getting taken hostage <laughs> by a loan shark, let us know, please, please blink twice. Blink twice if you're being taken hostage. Uh, yeah, again, it's it's less the ideas in and of themselves. It's more like how much money they're throwing at it. It's like, how, how desperate a straits are you folks in that you're like, just throw all the money at the few ideas we have. I'm like, maybe not do that. If I, I, I'm just wondering, has Peacock not been a success for them? I don't know because Peacock, um, Peacock isn't a, maybe they have a subscription scheme, but like it's, it's ad run. Um, which is part of why I almost never use it. Um, but you know, they, they just run ads on the thing like it's normal television. Um, so I have no idea what the subscription numbers are on that. That said, if they're selling ad space, they probably don't need Mm -hmm. the same kind of subscription numbers that Mm -hmm. things like Disney plus HBO max, Apple TV and the rest of them um, kind of need. Um, But like, I don't, Peacock is one of those ones that I tend to forget exists until (laughs) I look into something. What's that? Oh, it's on Peacock. Oh, right. That thing, (laughs) that thing that I don't bother watching. (laughs) Yeah. The only time I really used Peacock was where, um, and I haven't even finished up the season yet. But for um, the Alan Tudyk show, Resident Alien. Oh, I forgot that was on that. Like, see, that's that's my point. Yeah. Like, I, I remember that being advertised and then it came out and I never heard a damn thing about it again. Yeah, because it's just like all the Universal, um, NBC Universal properties, like NBC, Sci-Fi, and that type of stuff are all on there. And it's like, oh yeah, I have to use that. Damn it. <laughs> but yeah, I digress. Anyway, moving on to our next topic, we got an official trailer for King Richard. The synopsis reads, based on the true story that will inspire the world, King Richard follows the journey of Richard Williams, played by Will Smith, an undeterred father instrumental in raising two of the most extraordinarily gifted athletes of all time who will end up changing the sport of tennis forever. Driven by a clearer vision of their future and using unconventional methods, Richard has a plan that will take Venus and Serena Williams, played by Saeed Again, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Please forgive me. Uh, Senia, Sydney, and Demi Singleton from the streets of Compton, California to the global stage as legendary icons. In addition to Smith, Sydney, and Singleton, the film also stars Anjani Ellis, John Bernthal, and Dylan McDermott with directing duties going to Ronaldo Marcus Green, who recently, who did the recently release. I actually had to search this up because I didn't know when this movie was coming out. Uh, the recently released Mark Wahlberg film, Joe Bell, as well as the 2018 film, uh, Monst- Monsters and Men. King Richards is set to be released on November 19th, 2021. What do you think about this trailer, Vera? Um, not knowing a ton about sports, so not knowing whether or not this looks like it is being accurate um, or fair to the people involved. Having zero knowledge of any of that. That's a pretty well put together trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it like... For, it made me go, huh, I might want to watch that. And I don't give a crap about any sports, mm-hmm. uh, not a single one of them, but I was like going, maybe. And I I feel like I, I'm, I'm always interested to see Will Smith 
do something that sort of stretches a part of his acting talent that isn't his charisma. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not to say he's not charismatic in the trailer. He is. He's Will Smith. He doesn't really <laughs> know how to not be charismatic. But there's a lot of other things going on uh, in the bits of his performance that we see. So I'm curious to see that. The the uh, young actresses playing uh, Venus and Serena looked um, looked like they were uh, really into the parts and were really owning them. So like for a genre I don't normally care about, it looked pretty solid. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on there because I just again the only thing I know about this is the two tennis players and like I, I'm with you. I don't care about sports at all. That being said, I like this trailer and just the moment where I think it's either like Venus and Serena are like smiling in the mirror. I was just like, okay, I'm with this. <laughs> I, I'm I'm with this and just again Wilson's charisma is just that his charisma and just yeah and just yeah no I'm yeah no this this looks interesting and I'm just very curious to see also John Bernthal I have to say he's been doing a track record of like biopics and just been just he's just been in a lot of stuff recently and I'm kind of digging that because I'm a big fan of his work and stuff what what else has he done recently uh, he did Ford v. Ferrari with James Mangold, and he also, I believe he's also in the uh, Many Sinks of Newark, if I'm not mistaken. All right. Didn't catch either of those, so that's that's why. Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. And yeah, this, again, this looks really interesting. I'm curious to see how this is, but yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, moving on to our next topic. And this is one that, again, I will leave a link to the video because you have, you have talked about this ad nauseum, or you did a whole... You did a whole video on this. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I, you did a whole video on this. I, I had to do a quick turnaround video to get it out the same day the announcement dropped, which I hate doing, but like that's my job. <laughs> yep. According to THR, Doctor Who star Jodie Whittaker and Sharon Chris Chibnall are leaving the series after three seasons. The duo are set to exit the TARDIS in a trio of Doctor Who specials, which will culminate in an epic blockbuster special that will air in autumn of 2022. In 2017, I opened my glorious gift box of size 13 shoes. I could not have guessed the brilliant adventures, worlds, and wonders I was to see in them, said Whittaker. My heart is so full of love for the show, for the team that made it, for the fans who watched and for what it brought to my life and i could not thank chris enough for entrusting me with his incredible stories we knew we wanted to ride this wave side by side and pass the time together so here we are weeks away from wrapping on the best job i've ever had i don't think i'll be able to express what this role has given me i will always carry the doctors and the lessons i've learned forever uh chimno follows this up by saying Joni and i made a three series and out pack with each other at the start of this once in a lifetime blast. So now our shift is done and we're handing back the TARDIS keys. Jody's magnificent iconic doctor has exceeded all our highest expectations. She's been the gold standard leading at their shouldering responsibility of being the first female doctor with style, strength, warm, generosity, and humor. She's captured the public imagination and continues to inspire adoration around the world, as well as from everyone on the production. I cannot imagine working with a more inspiring doctor, so I'm not going to. Um... Okay, so I shall also probably start. So when it comes to Doctor Who, my first Doctor was Matt Smith. And my first companions were Amy and Rory. And so when it comes to like every Doctor past like that, or even Doctors beforehand, I, I'm always into them being because I trust the actor and stuff, but I'm not as invested. Because again, it's just like, you know, you never, I don't know if you've ever heard this quote before, but you never forget your first Doctor. I've heard that. Um... But I, and, and that's true, 
but I also don't subscribe to the idea that your first doctor will always be your favorite because mm. my favorite's Peter Capaldi and he was definitely not the first one I saw. Mm. Um, so, okay. Obviously I've done like a 20 plus minute <laughs> video on this. So let, let me condense down to a couple of bullet points here. Mm -hmm. I am not going to particularly miss Chris Chibnall as uh, the showrunner. Um, I'm not going to say that there was no good episodes or no good writing that came out of his tenure. There were, there were a couple of episodes that I even really, really love. However, none of them were ones that he wrote. Mm. And some of the stuff, like some of the stuff that he did, I'm like, that's a good idea, but it didn't pull together. And some of the stuff he did, I think was a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not really bemoaning the leaving of Chibnall. That having been said, I'm glad he's getting um, the... Uh, the 13th series and uh, and the three specials to close out whatever story it was that he wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. I think he should get the chance to do that so that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work on its own merits, not because it was cut short. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad he gets the chance to finish. Mm -hmm. I'm also ready for him to go. Whitaker, I'm a little bit more mixed on. I don't love her doctor, but I, that's because I haven't, I've, I felt at a distance from her for most of it, but she has mm -hmm. been growing on me as time has gone on. And I, mm -hmm. I always want to like Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. There, There's a cottage industry, especially on YouTube, of people who seem to love hating everything Doctor Who does. Mm -hmm. I want to love Doctor Who. I always want to love Doctor Who. And even if it's doing something that I think is a bad idea, I still want it to work. I never want the show to fail. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of wish that Whitaker had stuck around longer so I could see what she might do under another showrunner. We're not going to get that chance. Her tenure um, is actually turns out to be about average. Total number of episodes is fewer, but that's because they cut episodes per season. Um, but it's three series and some specials. That's basically, that was the same as Tennant. That was the same as Smith. That was the same as Capaldi. That's what they all did. So that seems to really be the template. The only thing, honestly, that has me concerned right now, and mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be doing a video on this come Wednesday, um, mm. is the fact that they haven't announced a replacement showrunner yet. Mm. Um, I'm not surprised they haven't announced a, announced a replacement doctor. I would not expect them to do that until the next pro proper series finishes airing mm -hmm. because that's usually the way that they've gone about it with the announcements they let whatever is the last full series finish and mm -hmm. then between that and whatever specials close out the doctor they announce the next one but prior to this new showrunners were announced at the same time as the announcement of the old ones leaving mm. and so for every day that ticks by since we've heard the announcement of chibnall leaving that we don't get an announcement of a new showrunner it just kind of it's it's an it's a growing question mark over my head as to possible reasons for that. So that's the one thing that I'm like, should I be worried by that fact? And I don't know if I am yet, but I am like, yeah, Aww. okay. And if um I know that this is kind of getting into speculation territory, but if there was a showrunner, particular showrunner that you would like to have on Doctor Who, who would you like to have? I'm just curious. I mean, realistically or pie in the sky? Either or. <laughs> I mean, my pie in the sky pick is Neil Gaiman, but he won't do it. Yeah. Um, 
uh, and my my uh, my friend Stuart, who does the YouTube channel Stu Bagful, he he his pie in the sky was Charlie Brooker, which would also be very cool to see. Um, I'd be a bit concerned with that because I the, the only thing I'm familiar with him is Black Mirror, and I only could do like one episode of that show. See, I've seen all the all of Black Mirror, and Black Mirror can be uplifting. It's usually not, but it can be uplifting. And the the guy's a very talented and very intelligent writer, but. Um, that would be a bold swing. I think on the more realistic um, end of things, Toby Whithouse, maybe Jamie mm-hmm. Matheson, possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of at a point where I think it might even be a better idea to not get someone who's already written for the show. I mean, because the names I mentioned, they've written for stuff already. Because again, that's been the pattern prior to this. Mm-hmm. Moffat wrote episodes before he became showrunner. Chibnall wrote episodes before he became showrunner. So that's the assumption. So that's mm-hmm. assumed the pool of viable candidates. Uh, Paul, Paul Cornell, I'd also be up for. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't think it would be a bad idea to just go with someone who has not written for the show. I would like someone who like is enthusiastic about the material is, you know, they could mm-hmm. be a fan or they could just be a fan of the genre, but I don't think it'd be the end of the world to bring in some completely new blood either. I, you know, I'd be okay with that. But now also this like kind of leads into another question I have. Would you have someone that has either written, cause you know, it's a BBC produced show. Mm-hmm. Would you have someone that hasn't like, entirely written for the BBC or have someone that has like written some stuff for the BBC? I mean, I don't know how entrenched the internal politics at the BBC are. Um, I, I wouldn't have that personally as a requirement Mm -hmm. because like, I, I know it's not quite the same thing, but just because Mm -hmm. of where my knowledge is, I tend to think of the BBC like any production studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's a little bit different than that because they are a bit more ubiquitous within the country mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, within the UK and they're also technically publicly funded. So like, I know it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit different and it's a little bit weirder. And again, I don't know not enough about the behind the scene culture, mm-hmm. but you know, experience with the BBC might be good in so far as, um, getting somebody who knows how to work within whatever systems they have in place. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I'm like, just get someone you think will be good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, again, for me, like when it comes to Whittaker and stuff, I've only really seen bits and pieces, um, really seen bits and pieces of her take. I liked her and I, I agree with you. I re- really would have liked to see how she would have done as a, under a different showrunner. But, and so I will be like, okay, you know, I would have liked to see more of her. And I'm kind of with you on Chimno. I don't think he was kind of the best fit. And just, I, I think a part of that might just because just his style and just, I even go back to stuff like, uh, well, yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I was just thinking about his like previous time with like Portrait and stuff. And I feel like he's more suited for that as opposed to like something for Doctor Who, but that's just, but that's just me. But um, as for me and who I would want to showrunner, again, New Game would be great, but he's <laughs> never going to do it. No. And besides, he already has good omens too, and he needs to focus on that. Well, he's got that and Sandman going on. So, and and Anansi Boys is happening now, which mm-hmm. I don't think he's actively show running those, but he is he is a producer on those. So, yeah, no, you know, our 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 boy Game is um, busy busy right now. Yeah, he's a busy boy right now. But I just I don't. Okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. The only I don't know that many British showrunners or showrunners outside of the outside of the states. So my mind's kind of at a blank. Um, mm. As for the one that you mentioned, like Charlie Booker. Um, again, going back to my thing about Black Mirror, 
I've only seen one episode, the San Junipero episode, and that put me in an existential crisis afterwards. That's an interesting one to have an existential crisis over because that's that episode is one of my favorite pieces of television ever made. But that's it's the me. it's the ending. I love the ending. I love it to death. But like, I I don't know. I'm just thinking of like existential crisis. USS Callister, sure. Um, like just, there's there's some existential crisis ones to be had. Yeah, to no, be sure. It's just. I think it's just the whole idea, and spoiler for those that have not seen the series or haven't seen this particular episode, but it's just the ending of just being in essentially a version of heaven. And keep in mind, it's been a few years since I've seen the show, since I've seen, well, since I've seen that episode, but essentially being in heaven and being in like essentially paradise, but it's on a computer thing. Um, it kind of, I don't know. It, it weirded me out, kind of. And, like, maybe it's also because of just my whole thing when it involves religion and the afterlife. It's up for grabs for me. And just, yeah, no, it's just, yeah, no. And I just, but when, in, but then also, like, wouldn't you get sick of paradise after a little while? Or, I don't know. Well, they, I, they can leave. That gets established in within the episode. They can opt out at any time. Okay, that that that's, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Sorry, it's been a few years since I've seen the episode, so I'm trying to remember details from it. Okay. But so, it's... And, and like, look, Black Mirror, no matter what your own crisis points are, there is an episode of Black Mirror somewhere that will break you. So <laughs> that's kind of how it's built. Uh, no wonder why we didn't get one last year. Yeah. Reality reality was enough. We did. We did not need Black Mirror on top of that. Yeah. Well, anyways, moving on to our last topic for the day. And this is one that honestly kind of caught me by surprise. Um, According to the Wall Street Journal, who were the first to kind of break the story, Scarlett Johansson, star of the latest Marvel movie, Black Widow, filed a lawsuit lawsuit um, Thursday in Los Angeles Superior Court against Disney, alleging that her contract was breached when the media giant released the film on its Disney streaming service at the same time as its theatrical debut. Ms. Johansson in the suit um, stated that her agreement with Disney Marvel Entertainment guaranteed an exclusive theatrical release and her salary was based in large part of the box office performance of the film. Disney intentionally induced Marvel's breach of the agreement without justification in order to fully prevent Ms. Johansson from realizing the full benefit benefit of a bargain with Marvel, the suit said. The suit also includes an email from 2019 from Marvel Sheet Council, uh, Dave Galuzum, in which Galuzum promises a theatrical release while adding, we understand that should the plans change, we would need to discuss this with you and come to an understanding as the deal is based off on a series of very large box office bonuses. It's no secret that Disney is releasing films like Black Widow directly onto Disney Plus to increase subscribers and therefore boost the company's stock price. And that's hiding behind COVID-19 as a pretext to do so, said John Berlinski, attorney for Johansson. But ignoring the contracts of the artists responsible for the success of its film in third hindrance of a short-sighted strategy violates their rights, and we look forward to providing much in court. This will surely not be the last case where Hollywood talent stands up to Disney and make it and makes it clear that whatever the company may pretend, it has a legal obligation to honor its contracts. Following the announcement of the lawsuit, Disney released a statement saying there is no merit 
whatsoever to this filing the lawsuit, especially sad and distressing in its callous disregard for the horrific and prolonged global effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Disney has fully complied with most Johansson's contract, and furthermore, the release of Black Widow on Disney Plus for Premier Access has significantly enhanced her ability to earn an additional conversation on top of the 20 million she has received to date. After Disney released their statement, though, we started to see a major aftermath of this. Brian Lord, the co-chairman of, C- of CCA, the creative art artist agency, and Johansson's agent responded to Disney saying, statement, uh, saying, I want to address the Walt Disney statement that was issued yesterday in response to the lawsuit filed against them by our client, yesterday by our client, Scarlett Johansson. They have shamelessly and falsely accused Mr. Johansson of being sensitive to the COVID pandemic and it attempts to m- make her appear to be someone that they and I know she isn't. Scarlett has been Disney's partner on nine movies, which have earned Disney and its shareholders billions. Uh, the company included in, included her salary in their press statement and attempt to weaponize her success and artist's businesswoman as, as something she should be ashamed of. Scarlett is extremely proud that she and all the actors, writers, directors, producers, and the Marvel creative team have been part of for well over a decade the suit was filed as a result of disney's decision to knowingly violate scarlet's contract they have been very deliberate to move ah, they have very deliberately moved the revenue stream and profits to the disney plus side of the company leaving artists artistic and financial partners out of the new their new equation that's it pure and simple disney's direct attack on our character and all else that they've implied is beneath the company that many of us in the great community have worked with successfully for decades uh, the women's uh, women in film Los Angeles division reframe and types of organization called the Disney statement a gender character attack a that Disney's recent statements attempt to characterize Johansson as insensitive or selfish um, for defending her contractual business rights has no place in a business dispute and contributes to an environment in which women and girls are perceived as less than able to less able than men to protect their own interests without facing ad omen criticism and according to former T and this isn't Keep, we're, we're still dealing with this, but and according to former THR editor Matt Bellini, Emma Stone, who starred in this year's Corella, which also had the dual release as its titular character, and Emily Blunt, who also starred in a recently released Jungle Cruise, which I'll be talking about that in the second movie in a second, are thinking about also suing the mouse. In addition to them, Marvel Studios Overlord Kevin Feige is also pissed with Bellini saying, Feige is a businessman, and he is not prone to corporate confrontation or shot fights, but I've heard he's angry and ashamed, said Baloney. He's pressured Disney against the day-in-day plan for Black Widow, preferring the exclusivity of the big screen and not wanting to disturb his star. Then, when things got ugly, the movie began to fail, and Johansson's team threatened to litigate. He wanted Disney to fix things with her. And she also knows that the last time that Feige got pissed off was in 2015 with the whole Ike Perlmutter situation and threatened to quit, which led to Bob Iger essentially having... Feige now report to him and separating the Marvel Studios from Marvel Entertainment until 2019 when Marvel Studios Entertainment was dissolved and Feige was placed as like either CEO or CCO of all of Marvel. So, okay, I, again, we I know you already did a video on this, but I'm just to for for our audience there who may have not seen it. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Because holy shit, it is not nearly as big a deal as it's being made out to be. It, it really, really, really isn't. Um, so here's the thing. Contract disputes are super common, uh, especially when something has changed about the release from what was originally planned for the contracted thing. This exact scenario has already played out once with Warner Brothers mm-hmm. um, with the release of Wonder Woman onto HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um to which they they uh, 
uh, they ended up throwing $10 million bonuses at both Patty Jenkins, uh, the director of both Wonder Woman movies and at Gal Gadot, uh, who plays the character to basically alleviate the fact that they robbed them of whatever their percentage was of a box office release. Mm -hmm. So this isn't even the first time that legal action has been threatened over this exact thing. I think the main difference is just Disney um, pushing back a lot harder than say Warner Brothers did. I think part of the reason for that is that Johansson's contract with Marvel was done. The Mm -hmm. Black Widow was the last movie she was going to make for them. Mm -hmm. So to, to, especially for anyone who isn't Kevin Feige, who obviously Mm -hmm. has a more personal relationship with her, anyone Mm -hmm. who's just looking at the numbers is going to go, we don't have to keep her happy. We don't need to work with her again in future. Let's fight this. Uh, whereas with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot, they wanted to keep work. Warner Brothers wanted to keep working with them. So they mm-hmm. threw money at that problem to make mm-hmm. it go away. Um, but there's there's this, there's all the stuff that's gone on with uh, the conflicts going on between movie theater chains and the studios about how those deals got mm-hmm. uh, are going to work in an age when streaming is now what it is. Is mm-hmm. it going to stay that way going forward? Does it need because theaters wanted to go back to what it was? Studios kind of want to either keep it how it is now or find a middle ground. So like, there's a lot of lawsuits and threatened lawsuits in the air around all of the stuff that has been changing because of COVID ultimately, Mm -hmm. and the changes to releases as a result of that. This is one more for the pile. It has been weaponized a bit more um, by some people, but as just a contract dispute, Mm -hmm. it's pretty standard. It's, Mm -hmm. it, it, doesn't surprise me that Feige would would rather they just pay her, um, but that you know people at Disney are the ones you know making an, an issue out of this. None of this, none of this really surprises me at all. And it's just odd to me that it has been blown up into as big a story as it is, when it's honestly a fairly run of the mill contract dispute, the kind that is well, is super common now, especially with the circumstances, but isn't uncommon in general. You know, stars suing for um, withheld residuals or anything like that, you know, even years after the release of things is business as usual. So it's a fairly typical story that is getting a lot more scrutiny than these usually do because of the size of the names involved. And Mm -hmm. as a result, feels like a bigger story than I honestly think it actually is. And that's not, and that's not me downplaying her suing them. I think she was well within her rights. Mm-hmm. They, they changed the release. It affected what she was going to get paid as someone who has had, who used to work a sales job and had their commission rate fucked with. Like I absolutely sympathize by all mm-hmm. means, sue them. I'm on her side on this. So if you're asking me, who do I support? I support her suing them. If they screwed mm-hmm. her, she should sue them. And it sounds like they screwed her. Yeah. But it's, just it's being touted as this apocalyptic thing and i'm like it's really not (laughs) i think i think a lot of people especially after the warner media thing are just a bit more cautious when it comes to stuff like this because i'm Mm. i'm with i'm with you when you kind of broke it down like that i was like you know what you're kind of right this this is kind of more of a contract dispute but i think it's just because we literally just got this movie like what several weeks ago yeah several weeks ago and just 
I, I think there's just a number of factors of that. And also like the Warner Media stuff and the fact that Disney, especially after because the only other thing I think they're working with Joe Hansen on is the tower is a Tower of Terror movie. And besides that though, like I just it, I don't know, it's interesting. And I I, I think it's also just another thing of where like Warner Media, like immediately like after Gail, after Gail and Patty got paid, everyone else was like, hey, wait, why aren't we getting paid these months? This amount of money, and they shut out like what two hundred million for either like in two hundred million or two hundred billion just to pay everyone else off because you know we didn't know what the hell was going to go. What the hell? Well, I mean, like it's also worth pointing out that part of the issue with Warner's was they were still in the early days of their acquisition by AT and T, and just as a company, they were fucking scrambling. Like mm-hmm. they knew they were under the microscope and they knew that protracted legal battles were going to look worse to their corporate overlords than just paying to make the problem go away. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, their discoveries problem now. So we'll see how the hell any of this goes on moving forward. I really hate corporate consolidation. Can I just say that right now? Yeah, corporate- I, I, I fucking hate it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of with you as well. It gives me a headache. It- it gives me a major headache sometimes because I feel like ever since, and honestly, Disney's like, damn, God damn you, Disney. Why did you have to go and purchase Fox? Weren't you just happy with Marvel and Pixar? I would be happy. See, here's the weird thing about Disney. And, and I, I, I hate that I do this, but like I, from a strictly how they manage the businesses they acquire, I wish they would stop. I really do, but I tend to lift up Disney as like, look, if this is going to happen, they do it a lot better than others. Oh yeah, no, heck yeah. Just because they, Disney has an understanding that like all these other major companies really just don't seem to have, which is that when you acquire a thing, you don't have to treat it like an independent company. Mm -hmm. It does not necessarily have to be profitable in and of itself if it's buoying other stuff. Mm -hmm. So like- Disney does not care that Marvel's publishing division mm-hmm. barely breaks even. They mm-hmm. don't care because that's the test kitchen for all the stuff that goes into the movies. It's their, R- go- it's their R&D department. Yeah, that goes into the merchandise, that goes into attractions at the theme parks, which is actually where Disney makes its real money. That's the mm-hmm. other thing. People assume it's from the movies. It's actually not. But it's they the theme parks. Yeah, but the thing is they keep... They they make sure that these properties and these IP are well-maintained because they know that their ownership of those is what attracts people to the parks. Mm-hmm. Whereas when someone like AT&T buys out Warner Media, they look at DC and go, this is a division that is losing money. And they don't even look at how this division is the IP f- factory for all this other stuff that you have, for all mm-hmm. these other things in warner brothers pictures in warner video games with like the arkham series and whatever like it all spawns from this if this original thing is quote-unquote losing money it's being made up for elsewhere but companies like at&t look at it on a spreadsheet and go that's losing us money that's losing us money that's losing us money and they don't understand the synergy of of things or they don't care yeah so disney is very good I mean, in the case of Fox, Fox sold its entertainment business because they realized that they were just going to keep hemorrhaging their percentage of the annual box office until it was nothing. And they thought, we'll sell while we have something worth selling. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were going to sell to somebody. 
no yeah. matter what. Disney just made the best offer. But when they acquire things like Pixar and Marvel and even <laughs> Lucasfilm, you'll notice once they buy them, most of the time, I'd say about 95% of the time, mm-hmm. Disney higher-ups leave them alone. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they appoint a division head they trust, and then they leave them alone because they understand we bought you because you do this thing really well. Mm. Keep doing this thing really well. You're just now doing it for us. Yeah, yeah. And I'm I'm gonna have with you on that because I do see like the difference between like Disney and like let's say an AT&T Warner Media, Warner Media. And I think also another thing is that Disney, at the end of the day, you know, even with the two parks and stuff, it's still an entertainment company. Whereas like AT&T and even even Discovery to a certain extent, which side note on that, wasn't Discovery owned by NBC Universal at one point? I don't know. That was one of the things I tried to parse when that deal went down. I'm like, I, I don't have the headspace to try and figure this out. <laughs> I don't know if they were owned by or were just partnered with. I don't know. Yeah, because otherwise it would, because otherwise it would seem like Warner was gobbled up by NBC Universal. And I'd be like, nope, nope, nope. Because yeah, no, I'm, but at the end of the day, no, I'm with you. I do. I don't like corporate consolidation as well. It just makes things everything confusing and stuff, and it gives me a headache. But you know, especially with the mouse, if it's under a certain umbrella, it's I don't know. The mouse does it. I guess the mouse does it better. I don't know. I call Disney the mouse sometimes. Yeah, I mean, like, I wish this stuff didn't happen. But honestly, if it's happening, they they destroy fewer of the things they acquire than a lot of the others and like mm-hmm. even past just movie making like you you look at video games something like ea Dude. they're like hey you're you're a video game company that makes really cool niche games let's buy you and have you make something that is not at all your niche and then close you when it doesn't sell well i'm like mm-hmm. Like Disney, that that kind of nonsense isn't even on their radar to think to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which thank God, because otherwise, oh boy, <laughs> oh boy, I I would be I would be a lot more concerned. But yeah, no, I I digress. I I but I digress. Anyways, anyways, moving on to your recommendations for the week. So I've seen three things this past week, or between the last week between this past week and two things two of them i saw about 48 hours ago and then the other thing i saw actually last week so but before we do that vera is there anything you would like to recommend recommend for our recommendations portion uh i'll make two recommendations for you um the first is i started if you have hbo max you'll have this i started watching um the animated series infinity train which had been recommended to me a while ago and I hadn't gotten around to. Uh, I've now watched the first two seasons. I've started on the third. Mm-hmm. It is a wonderfully bizarre um, science fiction thing. I, it's it's difficult to tell you too much about it. The basic premise is um, coming into the first season is a young girl kind of runs away from home. Isn't quite it, but let's just go with that. She kind of runs away from home and she finds herself on board this train that appears to be traveling through an infinite desert and there are an infinite number of cars and each car holds like a small world within it and they are wildly different everything from a place that is all mirrors to a place where corgis talk and have a kingdom and to to insane robot shenanigans it it is 
it is moody, it is thoughtful, it is inventive. Um, and I am really digging the heck out of it. And it's actually a small ask because seasons are 10 episodes a piece and episodes are 11 minutes long. You can watch an entire season in two hours. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no. You can, you can, you can even binge and gobble that up, gobble that up essentially. Yep. So anyone who likes inventive um, serialized animation, I would highly recommend checking that out. On a slightly less cerebral note, last night my partner and I watched Gunpowder Milkshake. Ah, oh, wait, what did you think about that? That I loved that movie. That was the best kind of stupid. It like, and don't get me wrong, folks, this is insane action. It is very dumb, but it is the best kind of dumb. I feel like in a lot of ways, this is a spiritual successor to shoot him up. Yes, uh, with, yes. With Clive Owen. Yes. It's, it has that same, it has that same kind of absurd level of, of action that it's like, does this make sense? I don't care. It's cool. It's really cool. And like at the same time, quite brutal. The action mm-hmm. scenes would have me alternating between going, between laughing out loud and going, oh, mm. and it was just really fun and it's just a whole bunch of kick-ass uh women in this it starts karen gillen has lena hetty it has um angela bassett it has michelle yo it has uh carla oh Eugenio. thank you um i can never get her last name right uh, but and uh, and it's got paul giamatti in it as well for, for hey. icing. so like this is a good time it is it is a good tune tune in turn your brain off and just let the madness wash over you and laugh your ass off at it. I, I had a great time. I'm with you on there. Um, I saw this about a week or two ago and it was, I, I would agree with you. This is definitely a spiritual sequel to shoot them up and just, it, it was glorious. I, I had a glorious, uh, stupid fun time actually. And that's also kind of leads me to jungle cruise. Cause that also has Paul Giamatti in it. Oh, it's, I didn't even realize it was in that one. Yeah. Um, so I saw this, I saw this in the theaters. Um, Theaters Thursday. Um, overall, I very much, I, I very much liked it. It was very reminiscent of films such as like *Romancing Stone* and *The Mummy*, especially the chemistry between Dwayne Johnson, Emily Blunt, and Jack Whitehall's character McGregor, who plays um, Blunt's character's brother, and was kind of my favorite part of the movie. Also, I really like the score by James Newton Howard. And okay, there's a weird thing in the movie. So though they use an instrumental of *Nothing Else Matters* by Metallica that weirdly worked and i don't know why it does but it just does um that said if i had any issues with the film there's one issue that there's a kind of like this twist at the end of the second act that kind of comes out of nowhere and almost convolutes the plot but other than that though i like it and i would give it a solid recommendation um the second film well the second film i saw um on thursday um in theaters was uh the green knight which was definitely one of the more intriguing films of the year uh, I thought writer-director David Lowry did an excellent job and adapted certain material on screen. Him and cinematographer Andrew Jackson Palmero was able to make arguably like one of the most visually stunning films of the year. Um, performance-wise, everyone was great across the board. Deb Patel managed to knock out of the park. Um, Barry Keegan, Sarah Harris, Alicia Van Kender, and Ralph Inson, who plays the chief character, were all great as well. Um, I also will say that this is not... This is not... It, it's... It's weirdly on the cerebral side, and I wasn't expecting that, but it just made things very interesting. But I, I do want to try and catch that one if I get the chance. It, it's it's good. It's good. It I, I saw it in a the theater. I don't know when it's coming on V. 
I don't know. I know Jungle Cruise has the premiere access thing, but I don't know when Green Knight is coming on VOD. Well, if I'm lucky, um, my partner and I are going to try and go to a to the drive-in um, next weekend. And Ooh. I know the I know the Green Knight is there now, so I'm hoping it's still there next weekend. Ooh, that 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 sounds nice. It is. It's actually there's a very cool uh, drive-in theater in Vermont that we that we like to go to at least once per summer. Oh, that's nice. I I have a drive-in theater in my where I'm at as well, and that that's always it's always nice to go to drive-in. Yep. But yeah. Anyways, and for the final film, and I saw I saw this last week. So technically, I saw this last week, but who's count who who's counting as time is an irrelevant construct? I saw Free Guy. Uh, but anyways, I thought that this was way better than I expected. The cast is hilarious, which includes Reynolds, Get Out, uh, Little Red Halley, Killing Eve's Joey Comer, Steve Harrington himself, Joe Keery. And Taika Waititi as the villain who, side note, Ty, I know Taika is directing. I know he's mostly directing and he should be focused on his directing. And stuff, but I need him to play more villains because he's just, he plays like this like kind of tech billionaire asshole. And he has like this hoodie, this like robe hoodie. And it's just, oh God, he's, he's he had me crack it up and just, and I know the man, I digress. I digress. Now here, here's my main question for you. Talking him, him playing villains. Did you see Jojo Rabbit? Yes, yes. And I know he, <laughs> I know he plays Hitler in that. But I just I don't know. I just and it's it. amazing. I know. I I I rewatched this. I rewatched. Um, I'll get back to forget in a second. But I watched uh, Jojo Rabbit. Um, again, again, the first time I saw, it, I think I saw it in the theaters. Um, I saw it again with a friend of mine who hadn't seen it just recently, and it's really fucking good. It. I saw. <laughs> I saw it on a plane. I, I saw it on a plane going to um, Gallifrey One in February of 2020, right before the world went to hell. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, no, I really, but yeah, no, I really enjoy. Yeah, but yeah, no, he needs to play more villains, and uh, I wouldn't even mind playing a villain in the MCU if I, if you ask me. I know he's playing <laughs> Korg, but can, can, can we just get him as a villain, please, Taika, please? I, but yeah, I'm, try, no. I'm trying to think what kind of, I mean, his approach would work well for one of the cosmic villains, certainly. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, but I could see him playing the Beyonder, and it would be the stupidest, most amazing thing ever. Oh, um, <laughs> you might be right. That would be glorious. <laughs> that 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 would be the best worst thing. Oh lord! Oh lord! Anyways, um, but yeah, no, all of them had great chemistry. Kind of to me and we each other, and we're just pitch perfect. As a result, I thought uh, director Sean Levy and company definitely used this to the film's advantage while tr- providing a tremendous amount of heart. There's also some multi action sequence, including a one shot with a very surprising cameos. So yeah, there's a lot of great cameos in this movie. That at first glance, I was like, oh wait, the f- wait, he's in this thing, and like he's in this thing but then also like it's ryan reynolds and he can get where he wants there's also a, there's a surprise that kind of happens at the end of at the like the third act of the movie that considering when this movie was made because this was like the last movie that fox relit before the merger the merger yeah. happened i won't give it away because the movie's not until like i think like august 13th or something like that but i don't think it would have worked had the certain thing happened and let's just say that I was kind of surprised. And let's just say I nearly did a spit take of who else is in it. It just, I, I digress. I, I digress. 
Um, overall, Free, uh, Free Guy is a surprisingly funny yet heartfelt film that was made all the better by the price of Reynolds and the cast of chemistry as well as the resurrection. I definitely recommend checking this one in the theaters. Um, when it hits theaters in a few weeks, I also think that this one is also going to be, and if you don't, and if you're uncomfortable with theaters, um, this one I think will be marrying either 30 or 45 days. This is having the same thing with Song Shi where they're going to be waiting a little bit, I think like a month and a half before the film like finishes the theatrical run. But anyways, I digress. Anyways, moving on to our interview portion. Interview portion. Um, anyways, moving on to our interview portion of the day. Um, so I got five questions. Uh, question. Um, question one. Why is there you to start a YouTube channel and essentially talk about all the great geeky stuff that you talk about on your channel? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the channel, it didn't start out with me just talking about whatever. It started out as scripted shorts. So what it started out as was just a way of me getting this, the projects of these shorts, which I'd had in my head for a little bit, out of my system and getting the monkey off my back. So that's originally what the channel was and what uh, what brought me to, to do it. Me ranting at the camera was something that I did. Initially, I thought just to fill space between seasons of the scripted shorts. But then after the second round of shorts, I realized I'm not going to be able to keep a pace of these doing this by myself. And so that just became what I did because as has been very evident by mm-hmm. this uh, this very conversation, I'm very good at talking for a long time mm-hmm. <laughs> about stuff. So I like doing it. And very slowly over time, people seem to enjoy um, watching or listening to me do it. And I do mean slowly. Next year will be my 10th year since starting Ooh. the YouTube channel. I've been doing this for a long time. So do not ask me for tips because someone who knew what they were doing would have gotten where I am five years ago. So, Oh yeah, no, 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 no. The, like, there will be no I, tips in this. I'm where I am out of sheer stubbornness and the fact that I didn't stop when I probably should have. But yeah, no, that, that, that's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Also, I didn't realize it was going to be 10 years. Congrats almost 10 years. Yep. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> it's like where is all the time gone i don't want to think about that the answer to that question next one move on <laughs> hey moving on uh do, uh do you consider okay as you're kind of more of just have developed into like the more critical side of things do you consider yourself more critic or just a reviewer and has there anything has there been anything that you've reviewed before in the past that you may have felt one way about and now feel differently like for example there's like movie or comic or whatever So I don't really think of myself um, as a critic too much. Um, Like I, I fall into this weird middle zone. I tend to think of myself maybe as a commentator because like I have lots of thoughts, Mm -hmm. but I also most of the times, at least when I'm, when I'm actually um, talking about a movie or an episode of a TV show, I'm not structuring it like a review. I'm just rambling on what the heck I think about it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and like a fair amount of my videos that aren't reviews at this point are, you know, just patterns that I see in media and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So I don't, while I can be quite analytical, I just, I tend to just not think of myself as a, as a critic or even as a reviewer, even though I do a fair amount of that kind of content. <laughs> um, as far as stuff that I've, turned on over time um i i'm 
I'm sure it's happened. I don't have a ton of instances off the top of my head. I don't think there has been anything that I've done a hard like 180 turn on, mm-hmm. but there's a fair amount of stuff where like, so I did a whole uh, rewatch of the modern era of Doctor Who up through the end of Capaldi's stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did find myself, um, you know, finding in episodes that I didn't like. Mm-hmm. And by the time I finished, I still didn't like them, but finding more things to appreciate about them that I hadn't noticed or had forgotten. Mm. Um, and occasionally there have been either movies or episodes of shows where like there was like one little thing that maybe I noted at the time, like a eh, little nitpick thing, but like my issues with that or my annoyance with it grew over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, for instance, I was, I was fairly gentle. Uh, I had complaints, but I was fairly gentle in my reviews of both uh the rise of skywalker and uh wonder woman 1984 Mm -hmm. and i my opinions in terms of what i think is good or bad about either one haven't really changed Mm -hmm. but my assessment of how bad the bad parts are has kind of Mm. widened over time so it's it's gone both directions a few times but nothing that's been like a a hard oh i used to say this was terrible but now i love it or vice versa Okay. It's not that I can All think right. of. All right. Yeah, I was just curious because I know for a lot of critics and stuff, and for a lot of people that honestly just do commentary in general, you know, sometimes you're just in the moment and you're just thinking like, okay, this is how I feel. And then like six months late, six months, years, years later, you rewatch and you're just like, oh, wait, no, I didn't know that or I feel differently about this. And it happens a lot. And I don't, and I feel like we don't assess it enough. It does. I mean, I think in some ways this is a benefit or a side effect of having ADHD, which is by the time I sit down to talk through it, my brain has replayed all of my thoughts on the thing about three or four times already. Mm-hmm. So, so what other people might take a little while to go to, I've probably already made a lot of the adjustments before I even sit in front of the camera because I can't, mm. I can't stop myself from doing that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, no, I'm, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. And I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I sometimes have that as well. Like, it's just sometimes my brain, like, I'll just be thinking about something and then like, I'll be going back to something and go through my thoughts or something. It's like a never end, ending hamster wheel. It can be. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, switching over to your book really quick. Um, what inspired you to write uh, your recent book, Dreams of Fire? And could you describe for our audience? You may have never heard, heard of it. I'm yeah. Describe for the audience. Okay, Dreams of Fire, which if you look for it, uh, was published under uh, the name Nathaniel Wayne, um, because I go by either Vera or Nathaniel. So um, you'll probably want to search for it tied with that name, because otherwise you'll get like search results that are interpretations of your dreams. And like, that's not what the book is. Um, So it is a it is a fantasy novel. It is um, a very focused story on a on a core group of, of characters in a high fantasy electropunk setting. Um, there are uh, fantastical creatures in it. There is, uh, the lead character is on the run. Um, this thing I've been working on for an embarrassingly long amount of time. The very first, like writing down any of the ideas for this was uh, about 18 years ago. Whoa when I was still in college, I had the first inklings of this thing. So this has been a very long time in coming. Mm. Um, and it has just been slowly evolving over time 
just mm-hmm. sort of initially from a thought that I had when I was lying in bed and couldn't sleep um, uh, to then just continuing to build on that over yeah. years. And eventually in college, like the first idea of this was I was just, I was lying in bed and I couldn't sleep. And mm-hmm. I just had an image kind of come into my head. So got up, wrote that down. And then I've just been slowly building off of that for years uh, until it eventually resulted in this, this damn book, um, yeah. which I'm very proud of, but has also been a monkey on my back for an embarrassingly long amount of time. But hey, you got the monkey off now. I did. I did. And and now uh, people are starting to ask, is there going to be follow-up? And I'm like, oh, sort of, but like I'd like to do other stuff first if I could. Yeah, yeah, no. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really happy for your book. And, and now my final question. Uh, with the success of your channel and the recent publication of your book, um, what is next? Um, more of the same, honestly. I, I love doing the channel. I love what I do. I love the fact that this is my living now. I could not be happier about that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have I have other books partially written that I want to get back to and, and like start to have a regular release schedule of, of written works. Um, you know, I, I, I have some ideas for bigger things, but nothing that I, I want to tip my hand on because until I am certain that I can pull something off, I tend not to talk about it. Hmm. Okay. That, respect, respect, respect. Thank you so much. Oh, that was the end of our episode. Thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I'm a really big fan of your work and just, yeah. Um, yeah, no, again, really appreciate having you on and stuff. And yeah. No, I was more than happy to do it. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Again, you can find our back catalog on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and more podcasts to listen to. We'll be leaving our um, Twitter on both Vera and I's um, social medias, as well as a link to purchase Vera book. So, so anyways, care and have a lovely evening, everyone. Goodbye.